This weekend, we begin a brand new series. It's our August series. I have the privilege of uh, teaching all uh, four weekends in August, and the series is called um, Helping Without Hurting. And let's uh, begin our conversation here. This is a picture of a slum in uh, Kampala, Uganda, the capital of uh, Uganda. And the story comes from an author by the name of Brian Fickert. And so Brian was in this slum in Kampala, Uganda, and he was at a church, St. Luke's Church, and he was teaching a class to business leaders. Most of them were refugees, and the class was about how to start a business and how to maintain a really small business. And over the course of teaching the class at St. Luke's Church, an area witch doctor, a woman, started attending the class, became a believer in Jesus at the class, and began to distance herself from her life of witchcraft and to be and began to learn what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. So one day, uh, Brian Fickert shows up at the class at St. Luke's Church and this witch doctor, they, by the way, the church gave her the name Grace, which I think is incredible. Grace wasn't there. And he goes, well, where's, where's the witch doctor? Where's Grace? And they go, oh, she's just terribly sick. And so Brian takes off with a sidekick named Elizabeth. They go through the slum. They go to the hut where Grace lives. And she is like deathly ill. She had had tonsillitis and didn't have access to appropriate medical care. <clears throat> she had her neighbor cut out her tonsils with a kitchen knife terrible infection lying on the floor of her hut. It was the kind of infection that could kill you. So Brian and Elizabeth are walking away and Brian goes, Yo, what are we going to do? Elizabeth goes, she needs antibiotic. She needs some penicillin. And Brian goes, can, can you get penicillin here? She says, oh, absolutely. Brian goes, how much does it cost? And she figures out, she goes, ah, it's like eight bucks. Brian reaches into his pocket $8, there you go. Uh, Elizabeth gets the penicillin, gets it to Grace, and a week later, amazingly, Grace is back at the class. And it, it's just in incredible that literally $8 may have saved somebody's life. You see, it's obviously an incredible way to help, a good way to help. And that's what you're thinking as you read the introduction to Fickert's book called When Helping Hurts. And you have to wait 100 pages. You have to wait till chapter five to hear Brian explain to you why he believed that forking over the $8 was a bad idea. And the reason he believed that forking over his $8 wasn't the best idea was this. Grace desperately needed to come into community with the people that were attending St. Luke's Church where the class was being held. The class at St. Luke's Church, the Jesus community at St. Luke's Church, even though they were in poverty, they needed to learn what it meant to minister to their community, which was the area slum. What Fickert wishes he had done was raced back to the church, said, hey, we got a situation here. Grace, the witch doctor, needs antibiotic. I would love for you to find a way to get... Now, listen, even though most of the people were refugees, there were like 100 of them, this would have been about eight cents a piece. What Brian said is this, that his, him reaching into his pocket, grabbing the eight bucks and handing it over, he stood in the way of them 
becoming the congregation and the community that they needed to become because he was climbing on a plane two weeks later and he was out of there. And he believed this was just one more example of, from their perspective, a wealthy American who stepped in and had the cash to take care of the problem. What he believed was that he stood in the way of him empowering them to figure out how to deal with the crisis within their church. That's why he wishes, he wishes he had walked in, told them, we got a situation, you need to find out how to deal with it, you need to find out how to serve grace, a new member of your church, and then he says he should have raced to a taxi and gotten out of there as rapidly as possible and let them have the challenge and the experience of serving someone in their congregation. Uh, what we're talking about here is helping without hurting. He believed in that case what he did actually hurt their growth. See, here's the deal in this series, Helping Without Hurting. Uh, sometimes our well-intentioned helping, helping out of a great heart and an eager spirit, we can actually do something that is harmful to the very person that we are eager to help. And uh, we're spending time, four weeks on this series, I have two assumptions going into the series. One assumption is that the family of Ada Bible Church as we move and as we grow, that more and more of you would feel your heart moved toward desiring to help in the massive needs that surround us in our world. That is, you will have one, one assumption is that you will have a growing desire to be helpful. Second assumption is that there's a learning opportunity and we can get a whole lot smarter, a whole lot wiser, and a whole lot sharper in how we help. But just that first assumption, something in your heart will be moved to help. It's probable that something in your heart will move you to want to help. It, it could be the repeated instruction in the Old Testament of our Bible, the Jewish scriptures, about looking out for the needs of three groups of people. Orphans, kids that have lost their parents, or widows, women that have lost their, the man in their house, and refugees, aliens that have come in for another country. The orphan, the widow, and the alien, those who were most desperate and vulnerable in a culture, repeated instruction to look out for the most desperate in a culture. In their case, orphans, widows, and refugees. And just a little sidebar today is if you've walked in here today and you feel incredibly desperate and incredibly vulnerable, you need to know that the heart of God goes out to you. The heart of God is deeply moved by human suffering. The heart of God and the people of God, their heart were to reflect the creator's heart. All I'm saying here is it could be that as you learn and grow, something in your heart will be moved to help. It could be the teaching of Jesus. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. A guy is beaten up, beaten within an inch of his life. He's mugged, he's robbed, he's left by the side of the road. A guy comes along, sees him, and puts him on his uh, donkey, uh, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, and pays the innkeeper to take care of him for a couple days. And looking at that story that Jesus, our Lord told, something in your heart might move you to say, and I want to be more helpful. You might not know what to do with that. You might not know how. You might not know where. But there's just, and Jesus used that as an illustration of this, loving your neighbor as yourself. Something in your heart will be moved to help. And my goodness, friends, there's just a story of the cross I mean, the God of the universe 
stepping into broken humanity, Jesus giving up his life for us. Understand something, when Jesus dies for us, he's paying off debts that weren't his. He's paying off debts that were ours. It is the vast generosity of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And as you lean into that story of the cross, it's like the DNA of this generous God gets transmitted to you. And something in your heart will be moved to help to live generously and graciously and mercifully. But, but, but sometimes our very attempts at helping might end up harming the very people we're trying to help. So uh, let's start here. Uh, I'm going to pick four scenarios. And I have absolutely no idea how our gracious God might be prompting you and leading you to be helpful in our world. But let me just pick four, but I could have picked you know, from, from, from dozens and dozens of examples. So just four scenarios. Scenario number one, um, Fred approaches you and says, hey, uh, refugee family from Afghanistan, they're arriving in Grand Rapids like a week and a half from now. And so five or six of us, we've agreed to serve as uh, I don't know, sponsors to help them get their feet on the ground here in Grand Rapids. Do you want in? And for some reason, you don't have to say, oh, let me go home and think about it. Immediately, you just go, yeah. Yeah, I want it. Now, you might not know what to do and what you're doing, but something in your heart is moved to help. Or scenario number two, you find yourself sitting at a grade school Wednesday afternoon after Wednesday afternoon after Wednesday afternoon to help a student kind of catch up on their reading. You're able to offer something in one-on-one mentoring that a grade school teacher really cannot do, which is focus one-on-one. And so there you show up time after time after time, uh, nudging as you read to them and have them read to you, nudging someone forward in their reading skills. Scenario number two, something in your heart is moved to help. Scenario, Scenario number three, couple moves into a sketchy neighborhood. They didn't want to move into a sketchy neighborhood. <laughs> they wanted to move into a nicer neighborhood. And as they looked and looked and looked for a house, they were just simply priced out of moving into a neighborhood that they would most enjoy. And so they moved into a neighborhood that they're going to love, but it's a little sketchy. Now, something happens to them. Suddenly, instead of viewing this neighborhood simply as a neighborhood to get out of, over a period of month, they begin to see their neighborhood as a neighborhood to invest in. Now, there's a term for this. It's called strategic neighboring. Yes, it is really a thing. And they start to recruit friends of theirs to move in to the same neighborhood. Now, when this something happens in their heart, neighborhood to get out of versus neighborhood to invest in, sometimes something in your heart will be moved to help. That's scenario number three. Scenario number four is just parenting. I mean, those of you who are parents, there's just something in us that longs to help our children. We want them to thrive. We want them to flourish. We want to be helpful in their lives. But then that question, how much of raising them depends on my ability and how much should I be nurturing their responsibility over time? Because sometimes the very activity of attempting to be helpful we can inadvertently and unintentionally harm the very people we're trying to help. So let's talk. 
And today we're going to turn to one of my favorite stories in the Bible, which is the story of Ruth. Are any of you familiar with this character named Ruth in the Old Testament of our Bible? Uh, uh, just a few chapters long. And the story of Ruth, that I just love this story, it begins, it begins with extreme tragedy and desperate poverty. That's how the story of Ruth opens. Extreme tragedy and loss and desperate poverty. And so uh, just to uh, show us where we are on a map here, uh, Naomi is the lead character as the story opens. She lives in Israel. Furthermore, her and her husband and two sons, their home is Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's the village where Jesus is born. This is like a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And there is a famine in Israel. Crops are not growing. And so this woman, Naomi, and her husband, his name's Elimelech. They're two adult sons. They're, his names are uh, Malon and Kilion. They leave Israel. They cross the Jordan River, and they go over to a land called Moab. This is a different people. This is a different country. They move to Moab because they think they'll be able to make a livelihood there. And then wham, 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 tragedy starts to fall on this family. Uh, the two sons, they get married to women. One is Ruth, one is Orpah. But then you read in the barest economy of words that Elimelech, the husband, dies. Naomi is now a widow. But she's got two sons and they've got wives. But then you read again in just a sentence, it's like a bomb drops, and then the boys, Malon and Kilion, they die, and in just a few verses, you're left with three widows standing there in the family picture. This is desperate. It is extreme tragedy. It is desperate poverty. Naomi, the mother-in-law, she says, you girls need to go back to your parents, back to your moms and dads, back to your homes, have your parents find new husbands for you. I got nothing for you. I'm heading back to Israel. I'm heading back to Bethlehem. You go to your homes. Orpah does. Ruth goes, no way. And there's this brilliant speech at the end of Ruth chapter one where Ruth just goes, no, 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 no. Where you go, that's where I'm going. Where you end up staying, that's where I'm gonna stay. Your people, which is the people of Israel, they will become my people. Your God Jehovah, the God of the Israelites, will become my God. In fact, when you die, I'm not heading back home. I want them to plant my body right next to where they plant yours in the ground. Where you are buried, there I will be buried. It's this intense devotion. And Ruth, who is a foreigner and who speaks with an accent, follows her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem. Extreme tragedy. They've lost all all the men in the family. Two ragged widows return home. Extreme tragedy, desperate poverty, and it's barley harvest. And Ruth chapter 2 opens with these words. Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, she's from Moab, she said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. She says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, let me, let me go out into the fields. Let me leave town, go out into the fields, and let me just pick up the leftover grain. The harvesters are gonna come through. Harvesting is not an exact science. Some pieces get left, some pieces get, get, get uh, dropped, and maybe someone will let me pick up the leftovers in their field. Now, there's a term for this. Activity. It begins with a G. Does anyone know what this is called? This is called, it's called gleaning. 
And maybe the landowner would say, yeah, you can spend a couple hours here and then find somebody else's field. And maybe they would pick up rocks and pelt you to get you out because every, all the grain you pick up, that reduces their bottom line a little bit. So Ruth finds this field. It, the owner happens to be a dude by the name of Boaz. She doesn't know it, but Boaz is like a relative of her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. Uh, Naomi's husband was related to this guy somehow. And then Boaz arrives at the field. Ruth's been out there picking up grain. And Ruth comes up, uh, Boaz comes up to the manager, the foreman, the overseer, and says, uh, yeah, who's the girl? The overseer responds. Overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Now, she said, please let me glean, they pick up the leftovers, and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. She arrived first thing this morning. She's been picking up grain all morning. I mean, except for a little break to get relief from the hot sun, a little break in the shelter. She's been out there all day. And then Boaz calls her and says, come here. Now, if I'm Ruth, I'm just a little nervous. This is a guy that owns a field. She approaches Boaz, and this is what Boaz says. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't leave here. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Now, stay here with the women who work for me. As I understand the distribution of labor, the guys would come through first with a cutting instrument, uh, a scythe, and they would, a sickle, and they would cut the stalks of grain, and then servant girls, they would come through and bundle it, and then if you were a gleaner, you could tag along behind them and pick up the pieces that had fallen to the ground or that were left over. So he says, uh, stick with my curls. Then he says this, look, 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 look who my harvesters are, see who they are. Now, verse 9, watch the field where the men are harvesting, my guys, and follow along with the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Boaz tells his guys, hey, nobody touches her. Follow, and he says, by the way, uh, over there, there's some water. If you get thirsty, you know, help yourself. And whenever you are thirsty, second half of verse 9, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. This is tender. This is loving. Boaz is helping, and Ruth needs help. Desperate poverty. Lunchtime, no, <laughs> Ruth just kind of melts and says, why are you treating me with such kindness? And Boaz looks at her and says, I heard what you did for your mother-in-law, Naomi. When your husband died, you left your home, you left your land, you left your parents, and you came back here to take care of her. And then he does this blessing thing. He says, may the God of Israel reward you for what you've done. Uh, may you find shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. May you be blessed for what you're doing for your mother-in-law. Lunchtime rolls around, and here's Boaz's crew, and there's Ruth, and he goes, hey, come here. He's, he's, he invites her into the group, invites her to share some of the bread, and then <laughs> as his guys are going back to work, he tells his guys, you know, uh, even pull a stock out and drop it every once in a while. <laughs> you know, drop some of the grain uh, intentionally. Now, evening rolls around, harvest day is done, Ruth goes home. No, Ruth doesn't go home. Ruth has these bundles of grain, uh, stocks, really. It, it, you, you got another step in the process to turn this into that, a bag of grain. It, the technical term is, term is threshing. 
Now, if you had a big operation, you would have a threshing sledge that you would pull over the grain that would be pulled by oxen or middle school children. And, um, but if you're Ruth and without resources, you would put it like on a hard surface and you'd beat on it with a stick and separate the grain from the stalk. And then you find a place that's a little windy with some breeze and you just like throw it up in the air and the wind, the chaff is lighter and the grain is heavier so the grain would fall down and the chaff would blow away and you would do that over and over and over and over again until you had your pile of grain. So after evening hit, then she does the threshing and she carries the grain that she has back to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Bending, gathering, threshing, carrying. By the way, you know how much she had at the end of the first day? It was like half a bushel. She shows up with this. I think Naomi must be worried sick because she's been gone all day. What's happened to her? She shows up with this. I want you to see what explodes out of the mother-in-law when she sees this. Uh, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Where did you pick up grain? Where did you work today? May God bless the man who took notice of you because you don't come home with that much grain unless someone put you in a position where you could really work that field all day. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi knows that someone was helping. And then the chapter closes with these words, verse 23. It says, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. This is not just a day. Barley matured before wheat. So she's with Boaz girls, all barley harvest, and then wheat harvest, she's with them day after day after day after day after day. Waking up, heading out to the field, finding Boaz guys, sticking with the girls, bending, gathering, threshing, carrying back to town. Next day, in the hot sun. Bending, gathering, threshing, carrying. And the next week, in the hot sun. Bending, gathering, threshing, carrying. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Here's my question. Why didn't Boaz simply deliver bread to their house? It's an important question. Uh, why does he force this helpless widow to slave away in the hot sun day after day after day, bending and gathering and threshing and carrying. Wouldn't it have been more loving for this man of means simply to have organized grocery delivery and delivered groceries to the home of these two widows? Why, why didn't Boaz simply have bread delivered to their house? The answer to that question is critical to our conversation today, and it's also critical to our series. I can come up with three reasons why Boaz did not have bread delivered to the home of Ruth and Naomi. The three reasons are these. Work is good, Ruth is capable, and self-sufficiency is honorable. 
work is good, if our attitude of work is that it is a necessary evil to be gotten out of, we'll have difficulty with the rest of our conversation. Work is good. More on that in a few minutes. Secondly, Ruth is capable. She's not a helpless widow. She is younger, and she seems to be very able-bodied to treat capable people as if they are helpless really doesn't do favors to anybody. Work is good. Ruth is capable. And by the way, everybody was working in the hot sun. It's harvest time. Everybody's out there working in the hot sun. And Ruth is invited to join them. Uh, reason number three, self-sufficiency is honorable. Boaz is putting Ruth in a situation. He is empowering her under the circumstances she's in to be as self-reliant and self-sufficient as possible. This gives dignity. This adds value. This gives worth. He's allowing Ruth to become as self-sufficient as possible given the circumstances that she's in. Work is good. Ruth is capable. Self-sufficiency is honorable. Do you buy it? You're not sure. Okay, I got to call in some backup. All right. Uh, the book by Robert Lupton, Toxic Charity. Now, before I show you the quote from Bob Lupton, I want to give you his resume. Bob Lupton has spent four decades of his life in the city of Atlanta helping people get out of poverty. 40 years of his life working in impoverished neighborhoods, helping people get out of poverty. Uh, as of the publishing of the book, there were five Atlanta neighborhoods that had been uh, reinvigorated uh, because of the work of Lupton and his organization. Five separate neighborhoods that have kind of like got their footing and been reestablished through his work. So it, as you read this quote with me, you're reading somebody who knows so much more about this than I do and has been a practitioner, I need to mention this again, for 40 years of his life working among the poor. Do you want to see what he has to say? Are you sure? Okay, you asked for it. Here we go. Giving to those in need what they could be gaining from their own initiative may be the kindest way to destroy people. Giving to people in need what they could gain through their own work might just be the kindest way to destroy people. Check out the next quote. Little affirms human dignity more than honest work. One of the surest ways to destroy self-worth is subsidizing the idleness of able-bodied people, like Ruth, who was physically capable. And then he drops this at the, end of the, at the end of the quote. He says, work is a gift, work is a calling, and work is a human responsibility. Work, a gift, a calling, a human responsibility. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, two-minute crash course on the theology of work.
two-minute crash course, okay? Very important for this in entire conversation. And let's begin in the beginning. As in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First verse of our Bible. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And God says, let there be light. And the creative voice of the creator in his generosity and creativity, our world comes in to being. He's making order out of chaos, and some of you whose business it is to nurture very small children in your home, goes, Jeff, you just described every day of my life attempting to make order out of chaos. That's what work is. Before the fall, before sin enters into the world, our first human parents, Adam and Eve, are given the responsibility of cultivating the earth. Adam is given the responsibility of naming the animals. It's like the creator is saying, join me, join me. I want you to be a co-creator with me. What this means, my friends, is that work is intended to be a spiritual activity where those of us who are made in the image of God, who is wildly creative, use our creativity and problem solving in providing goods and services for other people. Working is one of the ways we walk with God. This is why the Apostle Paul after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, would coach slaves living in the city of Colossae. And in Colossians chapter 3, he would give this counsel, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working, finish line two with me, as working what? For the Lord, not for human masters. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is Jesus you are serving. He's not talking to preachers here. He's not talking about leading a Bible study. He's talking to slaves whose job might have been a domestic work inside an estate. It might have been... Uh, trimming, pruning grapevines in the master's vineyard outside. He says, listen, this is good. It's honorable. Don't just do it for your human master who may or may not deserve your devotion and attention and your heart. You do this for God. You are walking in harmony with God. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. To apply ourselves to work, uh, it's not a necessary evil to be gotten out of, but something to throw our hearts into. Work is a spiritual activity, intended to be a spiritual activity. What I'm trying to say is this. Perhaps the highest level of help that we can offer someone isn't providing food, clothing, and shelter. Perhaps the highest level of help is walking with them and helping them reach that point where they are providing their own food, clothing, and shelter. Do you buy it? Still not convinced? Okay, a little bit more back up. Fickert, where we started the conversation with him giving the eight bucks in this, uh, you know, refugee situation in this slum in Uganda. Uh, it's a little bit wordier, but it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. And again, Fickert, just like um, uh, Lupton, has spent his entire adult life in alleviating poverty 
in parts of the world. So uh, listen to what Fickert has to say on this uh, in his book, When Helping Hurts. He says, material poverty alleviation, alleviating poverty, involves more than ensuring that people have sufficient material things. It involves more than making sure people have clothing, food, and shelter. Second part of the quote, rather it involves the much harder tasks of empowering people to earn sufficient material things through their own labor. Check this out. For in so doing, we move people closer to being what God created them to be. It's the, the, the same thought that comes out of toxic charity. He says there's two things going on here. And by the way, he said much more, the second half of the quote there, rather it involves the much harder task, the much harder task, the much harder task. I just want to suggest that it is infinitely easier to donate groceries to an area food pantry, as helpful as they are, infinitely easier to donate groceries to an area food pantry than it is to walk with, with somebody to that point where someday they are no longer in need of the food pantry. Now that is much harder work, the work of human development. But he says in doing so, we help that person live in concert with who they were created to be, someone made in the image of God, someone who work is a gift, work is an honor, work, work elevates human dignity, human value. So what this means is, is that when we help someone out, there should like always be like kind of two things in mind. And the words I've selected are the words uh, provision and personhood. By provision, I just mean that basic stuff of, you know, food, clothing, shelter, uh, providing for someone. But personhood is, and who are they becoming in the process? And I think keeping these both in view and both in tension, I just think we ask better questions. It might be hard questions, questions that are difficult to answer, but I think it's much better when we're not just looking at provision, we're looking at provision and also personhood urging someone to become the person God created them to be. So, at the top of our conversation, I mentioned four different scenarios. There's like the immigrant family from Afghanistan, uh, uh, after-school mentoring, a couple that moves into a sketchy neighborhood, and then parenting. So, let me go back and hit those briefly. Looking at this, we can go back to those two words, uh, Tim, if we can keep those up, provision and personhood. If we can keep those up for a second. Um, Buddy says, uh, hey, uh, his family moving to Grand Rapids, refugees, Afghanistan. Uh, several of us are kind of getting together, serving as uh, sponsors, helping them get their feet on the ground in Grand Rapids. And as they're preparing to arrive, appropriately, you figure out they're moving into this empty apartment, probably ought to have like mattresses to lay down on and stuff. You gather some stuff and you drive over and drop off some very needed items, appropriate items, at their apartment. Awesome thing to do initially. Here we go. What if you're asking the personhood question as well? If you're asking the personhood question and not just a provision question, your question then becomes, and how do we try to get the head of the household locked into work and self-sufficient as possible, as rapidly as possible, so that this family isn't reliant a year from now on us continuing to drop stuff off at the apartment? That's the real gift. I mean, initially to get started, maybe, yeah. But it's really a one-way relationship. We are the helpers. You are the person to be helped. We show up when we give things to you. Someday, when you no longer need to drop things off, it's a real friendship. It's a back and forth. It's a two-way friendship as the friendship can be. But it's a different question. What can we do to help this family 
truly get their feet on the ground here and become as self-sufficient as rapidly as possible. Now you're not only investing in provision, you're also investing in their personhood, allowing them to become the person they were created to be. And by the way, I would much rather be a provider than somebody's project. In the end game, the long game, much rather be a provider than be somebody's project. Second scenario. Show up at a school Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday, a little third grade girl, third, third grade guy, helping them on their reading skills. Uh, don't just see the nine-year-old sitting there. Try to envision the 19-year-old that this nine-year-old is becoming. Not every job, but some jobs, some job opportunities require reading comprehension. Not all of them, but some. And if this third grader, girl, guy, struggling, struggling with their reading, if you're able to invest in the kind of way that they're able to grasp reading comprehension, then you're making an investment in their 19-year-old self. And perhaps the window of opportunity for jobs opens a little bit because they're sharper in their reading skills and some jobs require that. This is the goal. How can I help this nine-year-old to become the 19-year-old young adult? that will be benefiting from our time together long after they've forgotten my name. Long after what you're hoping for is their self-sufficiency. Now, that, that, that couple that moves into a sketchy neighborhood, they, they weren't looking for a sketchy neighborhood. It's just they got priced out of a better neighborhood. But here they are, and something in their heart is moved to invest here. But something changes over time, and it's a very positive change, and it's the difference between for and with. They started out asking the question, what can we do for our neighbors? And the question changes to a much more beautiful question, what can we do with our neighbors? For our neighbors is kind of like, we are here, you are here, we are here to rescue, we are here to help, we are here to save. A little bit of a God complex. But if there's humility and the assumption, we assume God's already at work in this neighborhood. There may be teachers that are deeply dedicated in classrooms. There may be a church two blocks away that has been attempting to invest here for decades. There may be a neighborhood watch group that is well-led and effective. And so just listening, asking a thousand questions, and it's not always what do we start, it's what can we join but it changes the question, not what can I do for you, but what can I do with you? It accelerates the possibility of helping without harming. Scenario number four, parenting. Uh, some of you have children, one age or another, in your home. Chris and I, our three are in their 30s. When they were younger and in my home, there was something I tried to remind myself of over and over and over and over again, and it was this. Jeff, you're not raising children. You're raising adults. You're not raising children. You're raising adults. Someday you will unleash them upon the world, and it is my hope and desire that they be faithful, consistent, self-sufficient, 
say this to parents because we just we want to help our kids. But when this kid is, is five and then they're 12 and then they're 17, increasingly I should be moving away from doing everything for them to allowing them to step in age-appropriate responsibility. Because I'm not raising a child, I'm raising an adult. And I would like to suggest that sometime the very activity of helping them, especially as they progress through middle school and into high school, our very desire to help, we might even be prolonging the hard job of adulting. And so where do I balance this deal with my ability and their responsibility to give more and more and more responsibility as they age? Because we're not raising children, we're raising adults. I think, I think these are good things to think about. I think these are critical things to think about in helping without hurting. Now, some of you are all over this. Some of you are going like, you preach it, man. I have always believed that people need to pull their own weight. Listen, Ruth needed help. Ruth is doing everything she can to move towards self-sufficiency. Ruth needed Boaz. And Boaz steps in as a helper, I believe, in a way that allowed her maintain dignity, to maintain value, to maintain worth, and to be as self-supporting as she could possibly be under the circumstances. She needed a helper. I love this combo meal. It's what Naomi, the mother-in-law, says when Ruth comes home with this huge bag of grain. Is it back in verse 19? Naomi asks the question, where did you where did you work? And then she said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth had to get up, get out the door, take a risk, go to a field, bending, collecting, threshing, and carrying. But she could not have done this without Boaz. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Our community needs more people with Boaz character. who will help in a way that truly empowers people to become more of who they were created to be. It's why I love the story of what happened in the field. I believe this story is like the gold standard for helping without hurting. My friends, as you lean into the story of the cross, Man, God coming here for us, giving up his life, generosity, grace, mercy. As that DNA gets planted into you, there is something in your heart that will long to be more helpful. This series is just about becoming wiser and sharper in when to help and how to help. It's four parts. And you were at part one. Thank you, thank you. Uh, let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and our other campuses as well. I get to pray as we move out into our week. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that we could gather in this space and open your word, open this story and have it speak to us, instruct us, coach us. We need uh, wisdom and we need discernment. We desire for you to use our lives in a powerful way. Please mold us and shape us in the people you created us to be. 
And we ask this in the dear name of Jesus who came here because of his love for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.